Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. On this episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, the 1937 Hindenburg Disaster. It's about 7.25 at night. It's a Thursday evening. And we have Herb Morrison on the field. Herb Morrison, remember, is our announcer who says it's practically standing still now. They've dropped the ropes out of the nose. And suddenly he says, it burst into flames. It burst into flames. Well, I can't do it anywhere near as good as he does. But suddenly the Hindenburg's on fire. And within a minute, the entire ship is on the ground in cinders. People have jumped. People are screaming. People are on fire. Welcome once more to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Great to have you here. I know I say that every week, but it's true. So, I am thrilled to have as my guest once more the man whom I call the master of historical disaster, (laughs) best-selling author Michael McCarthy. Now, you might remember him from an episode just a few weeks ago, about the sinking of the Eastland steamship in the Chicago River. And you might also remember him on that very same episode, towards the end, promising that he would come back and talk about his brand new book. It is called The Hidden Hindenburg, the untold story of the tragedy, the Nazi secrets, and the quest to rule the skies. Thank you so much for coming back. You bet, Eric. I'm honored to be back. So, give us the backstory on how this book came to be. So, I was teaching a course in journalism history in Chicago. This is several years ago. And we did a segment on radio. And while doing that, I I figured one of the best uh, examples to reveal to my students was Herb Morrison's famous recording on the New Jersey airfield in 1937, when he's looking up in the air and suddenly the giant and famous Zeppelin Hindenburg catches fire, surprising the world and certainly surprising the man on the ground who has a microphone right in front of his face and suddenly has to start describing what he's seeing. 
and in a remarkable presence of mind, he kept the narration rambling. So we listen to this in class, and it's incredibly um, dramatic, you know, where he famously says, oh, the humanity. And as we were listening, I, I just was sort of struck by the fact that this man had a very kind of a visceral feeling, a visceral reaction to something dramatic happening in front of him. And as I listened over and over, we'd play it semester after semester, new class, new class. I just kind of felt almost like Herb Morrison was reaching through those decades to me, listening and saying, tell us what happened here. And so I started looking into it and I actually began at the time I was teaching my students because a lot of them were, you know, fairly young and didn't know exactly what the Hindenburg was or what the story was. And I was really surprised to find out that the federal investigation that was done the summer of 1937, right after the Hindenburg caught fire, never really came to a conclusion. It's they they knew that there had probably been some uh, leaking hydrogen somehow. They figured that the gas was ignited by passing storms. But, you know, why there was a leak remained a mystery. So that's where I kind of began. Could, could I look into this and find out what happened? Now. This is a, a sweeping story that not only covers the Hindenburg disaster itself, but also the, the history of airships. And airship technology is one that I'm sure many of us, myself certainly in, included, uh, don't know that much about. Uh, much of our exposure to airships in, in modern times <laughs> revolves around the, the, the Goodyear blimp uh, flying over a football game, right? Right. <laughs> uh, but they were pretty amazing pieces of construction. What were some of the earliest examples of successful airship flights? Yeah, so until the until the Hindenburg, the Germans were the masters of the air. They, they flew more than 100 Zeppelins from the year 1900 until, obviously, the Hindenburg in 1937. They built on centuries of balloon development in France and elsewhere. And the Germans used Zeppelins to pioneer aerial warfare. In World War One, these ships flew over England and other countries and dropped bombs. Uh, civilians often died and, and Zeppelins were decried as, quote, baby killers. They were called baby killers because really the, the battle was always confined to the field. And now someone was able to fly a vehicle over civilian territory and and bomb them. So in the 1920s, militaries in the U.S. and around the world were convinced they had to match Zeppelin technology or they'd have to cede dominance of the air to Germany. But by the time the Hindenburg was destroyed in 1937, rapid advances in the airplane made it clearly the future of flight. Um, nostalgia keeps the old balloons alive, though. You mentioned the Goodyear blimp. That's certainly true. And even today in Germany, there is a, a uh, sort of sightseeing Zeppelin that uses helium, <laughs> not not hydrogen, um, as, uh, as as its lifting gas. But probably the most famous prior to the Hindenburg was 1929. The same company that made the Hindenburg made another ship called the Graf Zeppelin. At the time, it was one of the largest the world had ever seen. It was smaller than the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg didn't exist then. But in 1929, it made headlines around the world by flying completely around the world, completely encircled the world in one big, long trip, uh, stopping in Japan, 
and the United States and Germany. People were fascinated. It was they carried radio broadcasts um, from the ship. People tuned in in classrooms. Children would have maps on their on their chalkboards where they would track exactly where the Graf Zeppelin was around the world. And teachers used it to teach geography lessons. So that was a very big trip. It was uh, 21,000 miles in all. Um, it took them 12 days of actual flying time, 21 days in all, because they stopped, you know, to refuel and check and maintenance at various points along the way. But that was. The world was absolutely fascinated by that. And, and to be honest, we kind of forget, but two generations ago, the Graf Zeppelin was far more famous to people than the Hindenburg. Interesting. The, the Zeppelin was named after Count Zeppelin, the, the man whose dream it was to turn these airships into basically machines of war, Right. Exactly. So Count Zeppelin, doesn't that sound like a fictional name? It doesn't even sound real, (laughs) but he is. His his name was, his actual full name was Ferdinand Adolf Heinrich August Graf von Zeppelin. (laughs) So we just call him Count Count Zeppelin for short. He was, he was a fascinating guy. He was a uh, army officer. He was fascinated with war. He had this big white walrus mustache and he was just this larger than life character who really until about his late 40s hadn't really done much. He wasn't that successful in the German military. He came over to the United States, of all things, as a Civil War observer and uh, watched some of the troop movements um, in the United States during the Civil War. And while on that trip, it was in August of 19, or I'm sorry, 1863, obviously, he set off for St. Paul, Minnesota. And while there, he had an opportunity to ride in a large balloon that was inflated with coal gas. It rose to about 600 feet and it offered stunning panoramic views of the military in the field in the distance. And the man was transfixed. He was completely changed. He said, he said, this is the future of warfare and I need to have this for my country. He was very nervous, as many Germans were, about the growing power of France, you know, right on their border. And France was getting quite good at operating balloons. They weren't, they weren't Zeppelins, but they were, they were sim- more similar to a light bulb, if you think about it, with a basket at the bottom, the kind that we see, you know, nowadays, um, at, uh, balloon events, right? But, but Zeppelin wanted something different. What he had in mind was a long, you know, sort of elongated ship that could be used in warfare. He wanted something. He had three basic principles. He wanted it to be able to fly against headwinds. He wanted it to be able to remain airborne for at least 24 hours to handle broad reconnaissance flights. And he wanted to provide enough lift to carry soldiers, supplies, and in a very dastardly sort of message explosive projectiles. This was really a terrorist weapon that he had in mind, and really nothing had existed like it. Now, one other quick thing to say about Zeppelin's uh, invention, Zeppelin's sort of um, pioneering contraption. In the past, most balloons were a single sort of rubberized gas bag. Zeppelin said, no, I want multiple gas cells lined up and held together with a series of light metal ribs. 
part of what he had in mind is if any one of this gas bags gets punctured, I have others. It's the redundancy. So it'll be a little bit safer, a, a more a redundancy that would allow for a more safe craft. So the figure who really threads his way through your story from beginning to end is Hugo Eckner. Would you consider him Zeppelin's uh, protege? Is that the correct choice of words, do you think? It is. It is. So the founder of the company, obviously, was was Count Zeppelin. And he had been looking for someone to take over. He was an older man. And uh, along comes this guy who's in his uh, early 40s. He came from a very interesting background. He he was an early uh, PhD student in, of all things, psychology, which was kind of a new field at the time in the uh, late 1800s. And um, he he was really good at public relations. He was really good at rhetoric and spinning a story. And the Zeppelin company had in its infancy quite a few disasters on its hand. Nothing, nothing uh, Hindenburg size, but you know, these things would crash. They would crash land. Sometimes they catch fire. It was a, you know, it was an experimental aircraft and these things went wrong. And so they needed someone to explain to the public why it was safe and why it was going to be okay. And along comes Hugo Eckner as the person who, who does that. Now, flight is in such an infant state anywhere in the world that there wasn't really a flight school or a pilot school that you would go to. So over time, Hugo Eckner impresses the people of the Zeppelin company as somebody who might be able to fly. And it turns out he was an immensely skilled pilot once he sort of took over the controls of one of these Zeppelins. And that's how he worked his way up. It was from PR into piloting and onto leadership of the company. It's fascinating. It really is. That Eckner was was in his 40s when he really reached his stride and became a, a massive celebrity, uh, not only in Germany, but around the world. Right. So he, he became so famous. He used, I, I say in the book, Hugo Eckner used his Zeppelins like magic carpets. He rode them all over the world. He was on the cover of Time magazine. He was given an award by National Geographic after the, remember I talked about the war, around the world flight. That gave him his particular celebrity. Americans would have known the voice of Hugo Eckner on the radio. He had a gravelly voice that Americans knew as well as any politician in this country. He also went out of his way to promote the Zeppelin technology. So whenever he was around the United States, he would fly this around the Chicago World's Fair. He'd fly it through New York. He was very theatric in the way that he would demonstrate what he thought was a, a superior technology for long flights than the airplane. So, yeah, before we talk about the, the Hindenburg itself, you've already mentioned the Graf Zeppelin uh, which seems, looking back into history, to be his most successful achievement. Could you share with us what the Graf Zeppelin looked like? What would the interior have been like? How many passengers did it carry? How did it fly through the sky? Sure, absolutely. So so the, the Graf Zeppelin, much like the Hindenburg, was filled with a series of gas bags that ran along the length of it. So virtually the entire, you know, if you think about a Zeppelin, it looks like a large cigar, right? Or an oversized cucumber. And throughout the inside 
were were these gas bags, hydrogen gas bags that filled up virtually all the space. Inside the Graf Zeppelin, there were cabins for passengers. These were little staterooms. This was nothing to write home about. They were really tiny, uh, probably similar to uh, coach quarters on a modern um, steamer or a modern ocean liner. There was a dining room. There was a control bridge, which was a sort of glassed in bubble where the the navigator, the pilots, the elevator men and elevator isn't referring to, you know, somebody that goes up and down in a building as much as someone who operates the the uh, navigation edges of the Zeppelins. So they had uh, a number of different compartments, but most of the Zeppelin would have been hydrogen gas. So the thing would fly. What you do is you would you would fill the the gas bags with hydrogen. Now, because hydrogen is lighter than air, it's going to begin to rise up in the sky. And once you do that, you would use propellers, large um, propeller blade motors to propel yourself forward. And you could go backwards as well. And you'd simply steer the thing through the air with these fins in the back. So it was like a giant arrow, if you think about it. Uh, except that it was propelled by propellers, uh, diesel or other fuel engines. And the, the Hindenburg itself had a cruising speed of about 70 miles an hour, which is incredibly fast compared with, say, a um, an ocean liner. So back then, uh, if the Hindenburg were going across the ocean, it would it could go from Germany to the United States coast in about two and a half days, where some of the fastest steamers at the time would take five full days. So now you've cut, you've, you've shrunk the world quite a bit in that you can, you can get people across an ocean in half the time it used to be. And this is fascinating for people who uh, grew up in this, this time. You know, if you think about it, people who were, would have been early passengers on either the Graf Zeppelin or the Hindenburg were late Victorian agers. They, they witnessed cars replace horses. They lived through the dawn of radio and, and the recent discovery of a, of a new planet named Pluto. They just thought these Zeppelins were incredible. They, they could suddenly fly at long distances in, in a way they never could. And remember, it's important to, to sort of give some context here. The airplane is a fairly small contraption at this point. It's mostly cloth and sticks. It doesn't have the best history uh, in the air. There's quite a few crashes. And you certainly can't transport tons of cargo and more than a, a few handful of people. So here's the Hindenburg and the Graf Zeppelin that are transporting dozens of people over long distances. And in fact, in the case of the Graf Zeppelin, all the way around the world. So there was no aviation alternative to what the Zeppelin was able to do. Yeah, and we have nothing like it now. This was really a, a mini cruise ship in the air. I mean, now we take planes, but only to get from one point to another as fast as possible. Taking an airship ride in something like the Graf Zeppelin or the Hindenburg was an event in itself. It, it absolutely was. So if you think about it, the it, let's talk about the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg had a sumptuous dining room with a long dining table. They had angled windows that you, that actually opened <laughs> dangerously, but you opened and you could you could put your hand out and feel the wind going by as you're cruising through the air at 70 miles an hour. They would pull over icebergs. They would pull over toward icebergs and let people take photographs. I mean, no one had ever done anything like this. There was a promenade deck where you could walk around. 
there was uh, a writing room, which might sound like kind of a ridiculous anachronism now, but it was important. People wrote postcards. They wrote letters. There were reporters on board, and the typewriters would be click-clacking along, and they would uh, send out dispatches via radio, and sometimes they'd even drop little dispatches from a preordained spot from a parachute, a little parachute with uh, the reporter's copy would come down. So um, these are these are you're right. It, it was very much probably the best way for us to think about it is like an ocean liner in the sky. And, and as you were listing some of the, the rooms that the guest would experience uh, on the Hindenburg, uh, they actually installed a smoking lounge, <laughs> which was interesting. Right. So. Think about it. Um, hydrogen is highly flammable, and the last thing you want is any spark, any any cigarette, any fire of any kind. Uh, the passengers frequently were searched for any kind of matches that they might have, so that they didn't come on board and accidentally smoke. This is you know the 1930s. Almost everyone smoked. So when the Graf Zeppelin flew, a huge problem with it was that. Passengers couldn't smoke and they would go nuts. They'd be chewing gum. They'd be sucking on unlit cigars, sucking on pipes and so forth uh, because there were long stretches without you know, being able to smoke. So so the Zeppelin company was like, we need to fix this for the Hindenburg. And so one of the things they did was and it'll sound ridiculous, but they they created a smoking room. And the ridiculous part is it was it, it was covered in asbestos, which was a fireproofing uh, material. And you could go in and the doors would seal behind you and you could smoke away. And it was one of the most popular places on the ship because everybody could sort of go in there, have a drink, have a smoke, talk and, and then and then leave. So, um, yes, it was um, the, the Germans had figured out a way to allow people to smoke, but still contain the sparks, the the lit butts in a way that that didn't endanger the passengers by igniting the hydrogen, which is all around them. Right, right. So the Germans are in possession of this technology, this this incredible technology that the Americans are incredibly envious of. And again, Eckner has become a worldwide sensation. But but at the time, his fame is growing and this technology is expanding. Hitler is rising to power in Germany as well. And it's an interesting juxtaposition uh, between Eckner and his focus on, on creating bigger and more incredible Zeppelins, it seems from reading your book, for personal satisfaction more than anything else, and Hitler and the Nazi party who want to exploit the ships for political and military purposes. Right. So we're coming out of the Depression, 1929, and Eckner has achieved incredible fame, as you point out, uh, from his round-the-world trip on the Graf Zeppelin, the most famous aircraft that had ever been in world history. And he wants more. He wants something bigger. He wants something that wows the world all over again. So he comes up with a larger ship, almost a third larger, significantly fatter ship that he can carry more passengers on, have even more sumptuous uh, apartments for them, larger dining room. They, he envisions having a piano player on it. It's a piano in the sky, right? So in order to do this, though, Germany is post-World War I. Uh, there isn't a lot of money for investment. He doesn't have the money to complete this fabulous project that he has in mind. We don't know it yet, but it's going to be called the Hindenburg. And so he meets with 
the new minister of propaganda for the Hitler administration, a man named Joseph Goebbels. And Goebbels has an incredible purse. He has a lot of money to spend. So Goebbels figures Heckner is very famous. Hitler is my boss and I need the world to think better of him than they're going to. So what they do is they have a conversation in his office and Goebbels basically lays out that we can help you build your ship, but I'm putting together a group of people who will be supporters and do some radio broadcasts in the future for our administration. And we'd sure appreciate it if you'd give that some thought. And so from the very beginning, the Hindenburg, still not even built yet, begins a very treacherous association with the Nazi party. And we'll find over time as the book progresses that that things only get worse. Yeah, they they certainly do. He's really sold his soul to the devil (laughs) in exchange for, for money to support his dreams. Absolutely. So let's talk about the, the final flight of the Hindenburg and the day of the disaster. So I mentioned earlier that that the Zeppelins have, in the case of the Hindenburg, 16 gas bags that run the whole length of the thing, the whole length of the ship. They're all filled with hydrogen. They're packed with hydrogen. And that's what gives the ship its lift. So it's May 6, 1937. The Hindenburg is arriving on the coast of the United States. It's 10 hours late. It's 10 hours late because on the flight, it hit heavy, heavy headwinds uh, as it approached. And so its normal cruising speed was about 70 miles an hour. It could only muster about 55. Now, as the Hindenburg is approaching the coast, its outer cover, which is a large seven acres of aeronautical cloth. It's fundamentally cotton with various coatings that are sort of brushed onto it for waterproofness and other um, protective elements. Its coating, its outer cover is rattling from these headwinds. And as it approaches the field at Lakehurst, New Jersey, which is about 50 miles to the south of New York City, it's a naval airfield. It circles the field and suddenly the men in the control car. Remember, I talked about the little bubble, the little glass bubble where the it's basically the bridge of of the ship. Several captains notice something is off. The tail of the Hindenburg feels what they would call heavy. It's as if it were losing some of its lift. The back of the ship, the stern, acts like it lost some hydrogen. Now, this puzzles them. One of the watch officers quickly checks pressure gauges, which they had on each of the gas bags, just to see, was there a problem with the stern gas bags? No, nothing suspicious there. So not sure what is going on. They decide to issue a couple quick orders. One, they're going to release stored water called ballast immediately. By lessening weight in the stern of the ship, they can kind of straighten it out again, correct that strange tail heaviness that they felt. And on top of that, there were six crewmen who are in the tail, they ordered them forward to get out of that area so we can like get the thing back on an even keel. You don't want to land a ship when you're kind of diagonal or crooked. Now, at this point, they drop what are called manila lines. These are large lines that go from the top of the ship all the way down. 
And these will be what the ground crew, a couple hundred burly strong men, will use to help bring the thing back to the ground. It's sort of their connection with, with the landing field. All this is happening. The ground crew runs to grab a hold of the lines they've just dropped down. Some people on the ground could look up. They could see the smiling faces of people through the windows of the Hindenburg. It's about 7.25 at night. It's a Thursday evening. And we have Herb Morrison on the field. Herb Morrison, remember, is our announcer who says it's practically standing still now. They've dropped the ropes out of the nose. And suddenly he says, it burst into flames. It burst into flames. Well, I can't do it anywhere near as good as he does. But suddenly the Hindenburg is on fire. And within a minute, the entire ship is on the ground in cinders. People have jumped. People are screaming. People are on fire. The whole thing is this gigantic flame. We've seen the, the videos on YouTube and other, other places. It's a miracle anyone even survived. There were 97 people on board, 36 passengers, 61 crew. In all, 35 of the people on board died, and one ground crewman caught fire and died as well. So 36 people actually died of the original 97 who were on board. Quite a tragedy, quite a tragedy. And it lives on for us because, largely because of, of the videos that we have, the film crews were on hand just to meet passengers and get some interviews after, after the landing of the Hindenburg. And of course, Herb Morrison was there just to record the same sort of thing, a little description for radio listeners of the arrival of this famous ship that the world was fascinated with and to speak to passengers. And of course, his broadcast makes history. And by the way, one interesting thing worth pointing out, he wasn't actually live when he made the recording. He was recording and it was intended to go out later uh, with his interviews. And so he ca what's captured actually in the recording is live, but it wasn't broadcast live. That came later, several, several hours later. So just to compare, and only because the Eastland disaster episode might still be fresh in our, our collective minds, the victims of the Eastland sinking were poor to middle class Americans. However, on the Hindenburg, the, the passengers who died were extremely wealthy. Very much so. Yes, very much so. So these are these are people who could afford a $400 one-way fare between U.S. and Germany or 720 round trip. To give you an example, the people who were ready to take the Hindenburg back to Germany after it arrived on, on uh, May 6, 1937, had the Hindenburg not burst into flames, the plan was for them to get on the Hindenburg and take it back. They were headed back for the coronation of the new King of England, who was just days away from that coronation ceremony. So this gives you an idea of the, the kind of money that people had to be able to ride on the Hindenburg. One of the more fascinating figures that you cover in your book is, is the captain of the Hindenburg. And at this point, it's not Hugo Eckner, who is listening to what's happening to his ship overseas. This gentleman's name is, is Lehman, correct? Could, could you talk a bit about him uh, and, and his background? Yeah, so Lehman is a really fascinating character. Um, he is 
the most experienced Zeppelin captain in the world. He flew actually more than his boss, Hugo Eckner. And he he hadn't been riding much on the Hindenburg this particular season. They had a, a new generation of captains who were going to be on um, the Hindenburg. And Lehman was in charge of trying to develop new Zeppelins for the company. They had a plan to build three or four that would, you know, traverse the globe. And that was pretty much his main job. He was more of an administrator at that point than a active pilot. But he's on the Hindenburg. He's on the Hindenburg for this flight. Very puzzling. And he he's on the Hindenburg as what they called an observer. That's very puzzling as well, because there were three or four able-bodied captains who were already planning to be on the Hindenburg. So they didn't really need him. And that definitely made me wonder what he was there for. But he survives initially. He, he makes it to the ground, uh, burnt very badly, and he lasts for a, a day. Yes. So he, he dies a matter of hours after the, the ship arrives, uh, does survive. The, the, the ship crashes to the ground. The windows of the control room, the control car bust open. He and the other captains run out. His entire back is burned. And he had a conversation with a passenger prior to getting on the flight that turned out to be absolutely revelatory to me. And the world didn't know about it until my research. An investigation ensues. Theories are floated around about what might have caused the fire. So what brought the Hindenburg down? Uh, immediately after the Hindenburg has caught fire, it's literally, it's a charred skeleton on the ground outside its landing facility. And there's a huge hangar it was intended to go into. It did, it never made it for this particular flight, its final fatal flight. But within that hangar, the Commerce Department pulls together an investigative panel to look into what happened. Now, why Commerce? Well, flight is so early, there isn't even an FAA yet. So it was a commercial operation. So Commerce gets in charge of it. So the Commerce Department pulls together a panel and they start a hearing, sworn testimony from almost 100 witnesses. They talk to people on the ground, ground crew. They talk to pilots. They talk to weather experts. They talk to people who had flown on the Hindenburg before, people who had piloted the Hindenburg. They talk to Hugo Eckner. They talk to, you know, virtually every, in some cases, they interview people who were still burned and in the, the hospital. They pull together a, uh, some of the videos from some, Videos is the wrong term. Some of the film footage from the time. And they showed them in a special theater near the Lakehurst um, facility. And they freeze framed it. They went frame by frame by frame. They used a special camera, the projector that was brought in solely for that purpose. So they spent, you know, weeks looking into it, taking testimony, talking to everybody they possibly can to to get to the bottom of it. And but in the end, as I mentioned, they didn't come up with a conclusion. There was a uh, concern about sabotage. Had somebody shot the thing from from the ground? Was there a bomb aboard? Um, they wondered about um, po the possibility of an overly sharp turn as the ship approached. That theory was advanced by Hugo Eckner, uh, which would have made the cause of the Hindenburg disaster a pilot error. 
But something about all of that just didn't add up for me. I think you're right that the Commerce Department blamed atmospheric electricity as the cause of the fire. That's right. How, how would that have happened? So there were, there were storms in the area at the time that the Hindenburg was coming in for its landing, and atmospheric charges in the sky could certainly have set off leaking hydrogen. There's, there's no question about it. What's interesting, one of the things I found we, as we're talking about the testimony that was gathered, it became clear from the testimony that the Hindenburg actually arrived at the Lakehurst base around four in the afternoon. And the sky was pretty clear. So the Hindenburg could have landed and the whole disaster could have been averted had it have done so at that time. But guess what? There wasn't a ground crew on the ground at the time. They didn't have the staff ready to pull the thing in. As I said, it takes about 200 large burly men to manhandle this thing to the ground. And they simply weren't there. We know this from witness uh, accounts. So had had the uh, ship arrived on time at four o'clock, which was, again, a delayed time, but had it arrived at four o'clock and had the ground crew been there, then Herb Morrison would have had a perfectly forgettable broadcast of the Hindenburg's arrival. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's the audiobook available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Wheel of urine! Cat. 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. I'm still shocked, uh, just going back to the disaster itself, that not everyone died in the fire. It, it burned so fast. How did people survive the, the jumps? How, how far was the ship from the ground? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. Why, why, why did so few people die, given that you know it looks so terrible when we see the film footage? So we're about 200 feet from the ground when it catches fire. And that's not that's not a good <laughs> that's not a good distance to jump by by any means, but it begins dropping very quickly. Now the fire broke out in the tail, the stern of the ship, and most of the passengers were in the nose, the front of the ship, right? So that that definitely helped. Um, some were able to jump from a distance of maybe a hundred or sixty feet as the thing begins to drop. In some cases, they were just in place. the The ship hit the ground so quickly. Openings came up because the the skin was was burning off, and suddenly they would run out between these sort of searing um, girders that are that are red hot. Um, those who ran against the wind um, were lucky because um, they were able to escape the flames. But those who ran with it, of course, the flames would be fed by the wind, and and they they perished. Um, so there were a number of things that were sort of in place. There was a, a cabin boy, a 14-year-old kid, who, of course, we would never have, you know, a, a person of that age working on an aircraft or of any sort now. But 14-year-old little boy who is in the in the Hindenburg, and a large water tank bursts above him right as the thing catches fire, which allows him not to catch fire. And then he gets up after he's sort of dazed and and confused as to what even happened, and runs out of the ship as well. So. Incredible stories of, of those who were able to survive. And as you point out, Eric, a lot of people survived in what looked like an absolutely un, unsurvivable accident, accident. In fact, one of the, one of my favorite uh, interviews I did was with a, a man who's now 90, but was eight years old at the time, eight years old. And he was with his family at Lakehurst watching the Hindenburg arrive when it blew up. And he told me, when I met with him in his home in Tennessee, that we never thought anyone would survive it. One of the photographs you have in your book is of the Hindenburg aflame. There are dark dots underneath the ship. Are those falling bodies? Um, Hard to tell. Some people have, have conjectured that they are. I don't know that we can tell from the photographic evidence if they are. There was a good deal of debris falling as well. Sure. Uh, just curious. Yeah, no, absolutely. So during this time, there was kind of a controversy brewing amongst airship experts on what the better gas was to use in airships, hydrogen or helium. Could you address this? Yeah, let's let's talk about it. So, you know, why why is the Hindenburg using hydrogen, which is flammable and quite dangerous, when helium is fireproof and much safer? Well, 
Because of a geological quirk, most of the helium in the world comes from the United States. It's a byproduct of petroleum production. And the United States was able to easily and fairly cheaply extract it in a way that the rest of the world couldn't. So Germany had had a tremendous record of using hydrogen safely for some 30 odd years. They really did figure out ways to produce gas tight bags that kept the hydrogen where it was supposed to be and kept it away from where it wasn't supposed to be. And, you know, there were some fires, there were some hydrogen fires often in the war that happened. But in terms of passenger ships, this wasn't a problem. It's always a lurking vulnerability, of course, but the Germans seem to have figured out how to contain it in, in, and perfect the ability to contain it. So if you wouldn't mind, tell us some of the things that you discovered in researching this book about the Hindenburg that hadn't been written about or discussed uh, publicly before. Absolutely. So the Hindenburg, what I discovered, had a hidden structural flaw. When I talked about the gas bags that run the length of the ship and the ability of the Germans to meticulously keep them gas tight. That's the word we use. It's not airtight. It's gas tight. Right. And they created these fabric cloth bags that were enormous that kept all the hydrogen inside. But what I discovered was that there was a, a structural flaw that was unknown the ship had a destructive rattle. We talked before about the seven acres of aeronautical cloth, the thing that made it look silvery. It's, it's like the fuselage of an airplane today. It's just the outer skin. It's the thing we see. This has a destructive rattle that was not well known. The outer cover was flapping excessively while the ship was in flight, and that was conveying damaging vibrations to the hydrogen gas bags. And very few people knew this. Now, how did the Germans find this out? In the off season between the 1936 season and the 1937 season, 1936 was the first time, first season that the Hindenburg had flown. In between, the ship goes to Frankfurt for an overhaul. And while doing the overhaul, technicians discovered that there was a damaged gas bag. They discovered it quite by chance. They were, really weren't searching for any kind of damage. They had intended to um, add some cabins to the Hindenburg, and they so they needed to pull one of the gas bags out to make room for the new cabins. And while they pulled it out, they, they found that there was a, a good deal of chafing, um, something that compromised the strength of the gas bag. So once they discovered that, they needed, once they started the 1937 season, to figure out what the problem was that was causing it. And they linked it back to the outer cover. They had observed from flight tests in the first season that the outer cover was, was rattling, was vibrating much more than, than was, was useful and, in fact, dangerous. What they didn't know, though, about that outer cover rattle was that it was transforming down to the gas bags, some wiring that was over them, and this wiring is rattling, and it petrified them. They weren't sure where the the rattle was going to start or stop. They weren't sure how to take care of it. And so they they attempted in the off-season, before the Hindenburg flies on its final flight, to fix the outer cover tremor with additional coats of paint and some other things, and protect the gas bags with makeshift repairs. And believe it or not, they actually used 
tape and twine to tie up and and sort of fasten down these cross cross areas between the wires as the wires cross over they were tying these up and, and putting tape underneath of them so that if there was any further rattle of the wiring it wouldn't damage the gas bags the problem was the repairs didn't hold and heavy headwinds which we talked about before on the final flight proved disastrous why was this information hidden well for one thing, it doesn't look very good to say that you have a structural flaw on the ship. Um, on top of that, the way that I discovered it was from the National Archives. So I go out to Washington, D.C., and I'm interested in learning about um, the Hindenburg investigation. They have the entire investigative files, the transcripts, every word that was said in front of that panel. Remember, we talked about inside the hangar of the Lakehurst uh, Naval Air Station. There are a room full of people. They have MPs with rifles. There's an American flag. They have a big map showing the final flight path of the Hindenburg as it arrives at the airfield, and they're taking testimony. So I wanted to read all of that. And one of the things I found was a letter, a letter from a passenger named Leonard Adult. Leonard Adult was a friend and a co-worker of the little captain, whose name we talked about before, Ernst Lehman the most accomplished flight aviator of Zeppelins in the world. Leonard Adult had been on the, on the final flight of the Hindenburg, just like Captain Lehman. Captain Lehman perishes, as we talked about, but Adult survives. Adult goes running through the flaming wreckage and survives long enough to tell us what happened. So he writes a letter to the investigative panel at Lakehurst, New Jersey, the Commerce Department, and he tells them that Lehman told him about the overhaul, the damage that was discovered, and the fact that Lehman was terrified that it happened. He was very anxious, and he gave us the information as to why Lehman was on that flight. Remember I said there were already three to four captains scheduled to be there. They didn't need him, but Lehman was there, and Adult told us and told the investigators back in 1937, the reason Lehman was on that flight was because he was worried about gas bag damage and the, the ability of the crew to handle a situation in which one of the gas bags may have been leaking. That's why he was there. And this is important. Lehman was a fairly newly married man. He had just had a child and a two-year-old little boy named Love. And for a variety of reasons, the boy fell ill and died just before the Hindenburg left. Lehman is distraught. He's very, you know, he's grieving with his wife. His wife is grieving. It's their first child together. And he, he has to make a decision. He's worried about how safe the Hindenburg is to fly. And he decides to leave his grieving wife just after their son died to go on the Hindenburg on what becomes, he didn't know this, but what becomes its final flight. And this is all of the information that comes from this single letter that I found in the National Archives that has never been published before. Amazing. So Hugo Eckner, obviously pretty embarrassed by this. Um, Hitler, of course, is embarrassed as well. How does he, he manage to stay in Hitler's good graces? So, you know, obviously this is a tremendous embarrassment for um, 
for the Nazi party. They have huge swastikas on the tail of the um, Hindenburg. It's a billboard for the technical prowess of Germany, and it's laying on an airfield in New Jersey, uh, you know, complete disaster. And on top of that, there's film footage that's circulating around the world, and of course, Herb Morrison's, you know, dramatic broadcast. So everything looks terrible. And, you know, Hugo Eckner comes over from Germany. He takes a steamship, and he, when he arrives to talk about what he thought caused the Hindenburg disaster, he does not talk about any of the problems that uh, they found with the gas bags previously. He does not talk about the repairs that they tried to make. And it doesn't bring up anything that suggests a structural defect. Instead, he says, well, probably the pilots made a sharp turn as the ship was coming in for a landing, and that would have busted one of the internal wires, a bracing wire, that was used as a structural uh, element of the ship, and that pierced one of the gas bags and caused a leak that then caught fire when it it met with atmospheric uh, charges uh, from passing storms. And that was a uh, complete speculation. Uh, It was contradicted by eyewitnesses on the ground. And, um, in fact, the captains who he kind of threw under the bus for, for having steered too sharply said that this is not what happened at all and you weren't here you don't know remember as you pointed out eric he was in germany at the time he wasn't even there so um unfortunately and this is one of the interesting points that the book makes people when they are celebrities can tend to be very authoritative the men who were at and it was all men back then we're 1937 the men who were at the hearing and the reporters who were there were absolutely starstruck by Hugo Eckner. There he is, the famous guy, the guy who drove the Graf Zeppelin all the way around the world, and I'm within earshot. There he is, and he's telling us what happened to the Hindenburg. So they wanted to believe him. They wanted to believe that he had an honest appraisal of what happened. And so when they look at all the evidence and they they talk it over and um, uh, argue among themselves. They adopt his speculation that there was probably too sharp a turn that ripped a wire inside the ship and uh, tore a gas bag and led to this disaster. But as I said, there was there was really no evidence that supported that. So, what about the adult letter, the one that I discovered? Why didn't they Why didn't they look at that? That was very good. It was. It, it gave them. A complete key to what happened. It gave me a key to what happened. So why didn't they use it? Well, this is where things get very strange. There's a man who ran the base for the U.S. Navy named Charles Rosendahl. Charles Rosendahl is in charge of the naval base, and he is running the operation of landing the Hindenburg. He's making all the decisions on when they should come in and positioning and so forth, and his role in the landing becomes quite controversial. You know, did it make sense for Rosendahl to say this is a safe time to land when there are storms passing through the area? You know, this is a question that that certainly made him look bad. But here's the thing about Rosendahl. Rosendahl is a cheerleader for airships in the United States. Believe it or not, the U.S. Navy had two or three of them that they built themselves. And he was one of the most famous pilots of an airship, same same term as a Zeppelin, in the United States. 
He believed in them. He thought they were better and more important than airplanes, that they would ultimately become the the way that people flew long distance across oceans rather than airplanes. And he he really was an evangelist for this form of transportation. He didn't want anything to be found wrong with them. Now, because he is such a expert, because he is the nation, the United States leading expert on airships, when the Commerce Department holds its hearing, they kind of need an expert witness. They need someone who can guide them, tell them the jargon, explain the concepts. This is very complex technology. It's aviation that no one really understood, but Charles Rosendahl did. So when the letter comes in to the investigators from Leonard Adult, where he says there was gas bag damage weeks ago on the Hindenburg that worried Captain Lehman so much that he went on this final flight. When that letter comes in, it is not turned into the investigative file. It is sent over to Charles Rosendahl's office at the Lakehurst Naval Air Station. And when he gets it, he must have understood how damaging that letter was. It was pointing the finger squarely on what the problem was. So what does he do? He writes back to the man who's running the investigation, a solicitor from the Commerce Department named South Trimble, and he says, oh, don't pay any attention to that man. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't have the expertise. He has been quoted in the press with many things that he said that that can't be right. He must have misunderstood what Captain Lehman told him about the damage and so forth. He basically smears his character. And in the end, the Commerce Department investigation does not take that letter into account. They don't explore its implications. So what should they have done? What they should have done was said, here is a piece of evidence from a passenger who was on the Hindenburg who knew Lehman very well and said that Lehman said that there was gas bag damage from an overhaul and that they were worried about it. You then ask Hugo Eckner about that. You bring Leonard Adult to the witness stand. You ask for maintenance records from Germany. You explore, you drill in on that until you're absolutely sure that that wasn't a problem. And that didn't happen. It didn't happen because Charles Rosendahl buried it. He covered it up. Wow, yeah. So what use is Eckner after this to the, to the Nazi party? So this is a good question. He, the Zeppelin is fairly useless in battle, right? It's very easy to shoot these things down. But, but the Zeppelin factories are tremendously important. As Hitler begins an assault on Europe, they need all the armaments facilities they can pull together. And so they, what they wanted to do was find factories that had been used for one thing to be turned toward war. Since a Zeppelin wasn't useful in a war, maybe the Zeppelin factory and their expertise could be used in something that was helpful for Hitler's war. And what's interesting is there was a project to build a very terrifying rocket, the V2 rocket, which used a light material skin, was round, cylindrical, and long, like a Zeppelin, and 
needed very meticulous construction like a Zeppelin. So the Nazis began looking at the Zeppelin factory in southern Germany, a town called Friedrichshafen, as a possibility for building this terrifying rocket that they wanted to use and hoped to turn the war. So Eckner's airship work coincides directly with, with Hitler's rise. Germany is conquering countries left and right. Early on, the Nazis are using Eckner's airship technology for, for spying purposes. But once that isn't practical, what do they do with, with the airships? What do they do with Eckner after that? A little known thing, the, the Hindenburg had a sister ship. It was called the Graf Zeppelin, just like the other Graf Zeppelin. It was a ship that was the exact same dimensions of the Hindenburg. It's a roughly 800 feet long. It's about 135 feet in the middle. It's the same ship. It's built exactly the same. It's back in Germany when the Hindenburg, its sister ship, catches fire and is destroyed. So the, the, the Zeppelin company still has one remaining Zeppelin. And by the way, one of the ways I learned what was wrong with the Hindenburg was because they made modifications to the sister ship in Germany once they learned how to control the outer cover flutter better, how to tie off more of the protective wiring so it didn't damage, didn't make vulnerable the gas bags. One of the reasons I understand what happened to the Hindenburg is because I learned from the modifications that they made on the sister ship. Now, Hermann Göring is in charge of the air ministry for Hitler at this time. We're in 1938. And he's very interested in spying on Germany's borders and bordering countries. But he has a problem. Airplanes are too loud for basically ra early radar equipment. They're too loud. They fly too fast. He can't really use it to detect aircraft and other things that they're looking for along their borders of potential enemies. So he begins thinking about the Zeppelin. It goes very slow. It almost hovers. And it's very, very quiet. So Goering and his air ministry asks Hugo Eckner, is it possible for us to use your Zeppelin, the remaining one, to do espionage on neighboring countries? And Eckner and other officials of the company agree. They agree to do this. So this helps his standing with the Nazis because he's cooperating. He's working with them. He's offered Hermann Goering, the notorious Goering, an eye in the sky for Hitler to spy on neighbors. And that's just the beginning. From there, Hugo Eckner moves to working with the V-2 rocket construction and he also has a history of allowing Zeppelins to be used for propaganda for the Nazis. And over and over, there are indications that he was far more of a Nazi supporter than the Nazi resistor that he proclaimed himself to be in his well-known and well-followed autobiography that was written after the war. In fact, Hugo Eckner's autobiography is the backbone for virtually every history ever done on the Hindenburg or the Zeppelin era or himself. And there's a lot out there on the Hindenburg, believe me, there's a lot of material out there 
a lot of chapters and so forth. But because he was the one who was the guiding voice for other authors, they didn't understand that he was actually a secret supporter of the Nazis rather than the resistor he passed himself off as after the war. And he's kind of a, uh, a showman. He embellishes to protect his reputation. And when Germany loses the war, he wants to avoid prosecution and distance himself as much from the Nazi party as he possibly can. That's right. And so some of what he does is he, as I say in the book, he uses the Hindenburg as his getaway vehicle. So he goes back and revises the story, revises the history and says that the Nazis wanted to use the Hindenburg for political purposes and propaganda, but I resisted them. I tried to keep them from doing so. That's not true. If you look back to the contemporaneous news accounts, which I did, he absolutely said that he had no objection to the use of uh, Zeppelins, including the Hindenburg, for Nazi propaganda. In fact, the Hindenburg and the Graf Zeppelin both flew over the 1936 Olympics. This is the famous one, remember, with Jesse Owens, who's tearing up the track when uh, Adolf Hitler is trying to tell the world that that his uh, white supremacist nation is superior. And here's Jesse Owens, you know, the uh, African-American athlete who's absolutely spoiling his, his whole day in parade. But flying overhead, overhead is the Hindenburg and the Graf Zeppelin. And the Nazis paid Hugo Eckner's company for that propaganda. So all the way along, uh, Hugo Eckner is is taking steps that that show a support, particularly for the military operations, but even for Hitler himself. In fact, one of the things that I discovered is that in 1934, Hugo Eckner, while he had all his celebrity and shortly after talking to Joseph Goebbels about um, Hitler, gave a speech that uh, was broadcast all throughout the country over several days in which he advocated Hitler as a ruler, advocated him as as the the future of Germany. And in fact, he said, while things may look turbulent now, in time, the Nazi regime will ferment into what he called, quote, noble wine. Noble wine. That just killed me. Here he is saying that that Hitler's Germany is going to be noble wine. And then after the war ends, he tells the whole world, oh, I didn't have anything to do with them. They they hated me. I was an opponent. You know, he twisted so many facts around the Hindenburg story that that we had to kind of go back and start over as I fact checked and tried to corroborate so many things that have showed up in other books over and over. What I found is the original source was Hugo Eckner himself. And as I tried to figure out, well, can I corroborate it? Is it true? I often found contradictory evidence, and there's just far more evidence in my research that Hugo Eckner was more of a supporter than a resistor of the Nazis. And that is not what you'll read in virtually any text that's out there now. Wow, interesting. So did any of his lies catch up to him when he was still alive, or did he die a content and happy man? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, Hugh Wagner, one of the big things that he misled the world about was in his in his autobiography, he said that he had tried to get helium from the United States. Remember, we talked about the fact that the U.S. had a virtual monopoly on the thing and, and it was a far safer guess. 
So he said that, you know, he had tried to get helium for the Hindenburg. And if he had been able to, he would not have had, you know, the, the disaster on his hands that he did with the Hindenburg. And that's a very dangerous statement because what that suggests is that there was some American stinginess, some American refusal to turn over the safer gas that caused the Hindenburg disaster, basically blaming America. Now, the fact of the matter is he did not ask America for helium. He did not order it. He didn't try. And he misled the world in his autobiography by saying he did, which made him look better, made the United States look bad, like we turned him down for helium. And in fact, the United States did have procedures to to turn over helium to foreign countries. The United States military viewed it as a national security asset that they wanted to be very careful about who they allowed to have it. And um, Hugo Eckner did not try to get helium from the United States until after the Hindenburg disaster. Now, stay with me here because this is interesting. Hugo Eckner tried to get helium for the sister ship of the Hindenburg, which was about to begin spy flights for Nazi Germany. Again, he did not explain to anyone that he was supporting, had supported Adolf Hitler previously. And, you know, that would have been extremely important information for the U.S. politicians and military officials to know when they were considering a request for helium from Eckner after the Hindenburg disaster. Wow, this is so interesting. Well, this has just been great. Um, so your book, just recently published, September 1st, uh, tell us where people can get it and tell us where people can find out more information about it. So, I mean, you can get it from Amazon or any any of the normal um, outlets. The, the other thing that I would point out to your listeners um, who love history and we love you who love history <laughs> is that uh, I did a three episode podcast on basically the detective work I did around the Hindenburg. You know, how did I begin looking into this mystery and how did I come to the conclusions that I did? And it's, it's about an hour in total th- over three episodes, approximately 20 minutes each you can find that at thehiddenhindenburg.com, so hiddenhindenburg.com, or, you know, um, through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or so forth. Sorry, Eric, not to compete with you, but <laughs> it's totally different material than we talked about. And I think your your listeners might really enjoy uh, listening to the backstory on, you know, how an author looked into the research and began to really suspect that much of the material that Hugo Eckner was giving us was um, – was not accurate. Oh, yeah. No, I, I wholeheartedly <laughs> encourage everyone to go out and check your website. It's, it's really cool. And I want to add this for any of my listeners who are just plain old World War II history fans. There's a lot from the book we didn't cover, including um, some of the interesting technology uh, being developed by the Nazis, like their rocket projects, etc., so I recommend your book f- for that reason too. Thanks, Eric. I, I think I think they will enjoy it. And one of the one of the things I use to describe the book is that it's one of the great untold stories of World War II. Absolutely. Well, well. Thanks again, Mike. You were amazing as always. You bet. 
Again, I have been speaking to Michael McCarthy. He is the author of the brand new book, The Hidden Hindenburg, The Untold Story of the Tragedy, The Nazi Secrets, and The Quest to Rule the Skies. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.